said, oh, you're a scab. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a raw nerve. I don't mean any disrespect to the, to the players union, but you're comparing it to a working class American family. This last whoop on our ass today. I don't know if professional athletics is the same as looking at the Teamsters or pipe fitters. Oh boy, man. There was no opportunity for me to play football for anybody. Let's have everybody take one, one shot, okay? But reality changed for me in the late September of 1987, and it was the Washington Redskins, and I accepted it. That from the 30 for 30 film year of the scab. And among those today receiving their Super Bowl rings 30 plus years on, Skip Lane, who we visited with here on Outside the Lines last year. Congratulations, sir. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. What was that moment like when you were handed a Super Bowl ring? It was the most surreal experience I've ever been through. You know, from, from 30 years later, to sit in a room and to see those guys that I kind of went to battle with at the, against the Dallas Cowboys on that famous Monday night game, to get to, to have it capped with a with a Super Bowl ring like this, I, I can't really uh, I, I don't really know what to think about it yet. I'm still kind of speechless, which is rare for me, right? <laughs> but uh, it, it's uh, it, it, it's very cool. When did you begin to have a sense that after decades out in the wilderness as a, as an asterisk or an afterthought, an outlier in NFL history, something like this might happen. You know, it was a long, long time. And then that this 30 for 30 sprung up and John Dorsey, who I'm sure you know, is a brilliant producer and a passionate guy. When he was done with his project, he could have walked away and put it in his resume. Why he loved these doing, guys and he really cared doing? about it. And I think, and then he got Doug Williams and Joe Theismann and a bunch of guys involved. And then he got to management and Mr. Snyder said, yeah, let's, uh, let's make it happen. So uh, without him, I don't think it would have happened. When Washington put this team of replacement players together back in that three week interregnum back in 1987, what do you think they did better than most other teams? Because you guys obviously were three and oh. Yeah, and that's been talked about a lot. A lot of teams didn't take it seriously, and these guys took it the most seriously. And Charlie Casserly, the GM, was, was, was talking about, it's really funny to talk to him about what he went through with Bobby Beathard, and they, you know, they bring up on their computer, and they pull up Skip Lane, they pull up Joe Coffey, they pull up all these guys, and, and the different profiles, and how they mixed, mixed and matched these personalities. And I was a little offended. He said, you were the smart guy. I said, I wasn't like the talented hitter. He said, no, no, you were surrounded by those guys, and we needed you to line them up. But they did a great job of assembling what, what, what turned out to be, a, you know, a especially great defense and, and, and a great team altogether. How ironic is it that the entire concept of not going dark during the strike, but going to replacement players, the man who masterminded that was Tech Schramm, and who utilizes it better than, than, than the evil empire in Washington? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And it, and, and it's, and it's, I think the NFL will use this as a tool as well for the because the bargain agreement comes up, I believe, in a year and a half, two years. So I, I think that's another reason to prop these guys up because these guys playing, a lot of them weren't even born yet. So I think they're going to put that reality into them that, look, you guys are, you know, you're, you're a bunch of spoiled brats and you can be replaced. You know, I, I know you're wearing the ring. You, you got to show it to us and, and what it's what it's like to flash a Super Bowl ring. Yeah, what are you doing this thing, right? Because I have to tell the story every time. It's not like anybody knows who I am. So uh, it, it's amazing to have this piece of hardware on your hand, but I think it just goes, uh, 
you know, you wear it for a little while, and then I guess you put it on your mantle somewhere, and hope nobody breaks in and takes it. Yeah. <laughs> or leave it on the top of your car. It's happened to a, a giant player recently. Uh, you, you raised something, though, about the, the league using it as a template. Scab is a very powerful and, at times, uh, emotion-laden word in our culture. What would you say to current members of the NFLPA uh, to explain your decision and, and the way you resolved it in 1987 to play? Yeah, I think they need, uh, you know, to get their ducks in, in order because they're going to, I think the NFL is in trouble. They're going to have to pay these guys because the league is now, I think the last time they, they had the settlement, it was a, you know, below a $10 billion league, and now it's a $20 billion league. That money's going to have to get shared, but the players need proper representation. They need to go get themselves surrounded with the best lawyers, the best union lawyers in the world, which I'm sure they're well aware of, but it's going to be a hell of a fight, I think. All right. By the way, the, uh, Way to see the 30 for 30 film year of the scab is to get to ESPN+. Plus. Skip Lane, he's got the ring to prove it, Super Bowl champion. Congratulations. Thanks, Bob. Now, eight years ago, the world was shocked when the United States bid, favored by most observers, the bid to host the 2022 FIFA World Cup was defeated, and that cup was awarded to Qatar. The process now documented to have been rife with corruption, bribery, and an absolute resistance to revisiting. As one principal in that process later told me, quote, FIFA are incapable of shame. Now, tomorrow, very early Eastern U.S. time, FIFA delegates will be voting on the combined United bid of the United States, Mexico, and the only analyst, Morocco. ESPN's global sports correspondent, Ken Borden, is in Moscow two days before the first match of this World Cup, about 16 hours, perhaps, from the, the vote on 2026. I remember 2010 vote, Sam, and uh, sitting next to Alexi Lawless, we were hosting a thing, they pull out the, the envelope that says Cutter, and Alexi says, gutted. Nobody saw that one coming. So what, where's the optimism meter against the realism meter here for the United States? Yeah, I think uh, you're not the only one who remembers uh, that moment, Bob, for sure. There is optimism from the United bid uh, leaders. They feel very strong. They feel like they have, uh, as Carlos Cordero, the president of U.S. soccer, said, a path to victory. But I think it's cautious optimism, as we know, when it comes to FIFA, when it comes to geopolitics, you know, nothing is for yeah. certain. Now, last time around, at this point, eight years ago, there may still have been money changing hands. And we're not making an evil joke or a cynical joke. I mean, that is a fact. Go look at the federal court records about all of that. Uh, now we have a very different environment. And as opposed to, like, oligarchs voting, maybe 15 of them, it's, it's a very different constituency. Explain. Yeah, so uh, that, that vote in 2010 when Qatar and Russia uh, won the bids for the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, that was voted on by a couple of dozen uh, FIFA executives. It was basically the definition of a backroom deal. Uh, lots, as you said, lots of corruption, lots of bribery, lots of fake.